0: Father, how can we not be overflowing with thankfulness after such a word and such a story and such a breaking in on life? I pray that would be happening in this room right now. And the people we care about that aren't in this room, that we wish we would lay our lives down for them if they would only see you like that. So come and minister now through your word, I pray, in whatever way these young people need. You see their hearts, and you can tailor this word precisely for them, and I ask that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen. So the outline of the three messages that I give, besides the one on uh, gender uh, later this morning, is one, one gospel... One passion, one mission. So last night, the, the jagged, undomesticated, unfamiliar, rugged gospel suited for beastly times, the worst of times that will not let you down. And today, the response to, the, to that with one passion And then tonight, where does that lead? What kind of life does that yield in terms of your mission? So that's the flow of these messages. And I left out one part last night that I just want to hit at the beginning. I didn't emphasize the oneness, the unique singleness of that jagged, tough, rough rooted, rugged, indomitable gospel that will not let you down in the worst of times. I didn't emphasize the singleness of it. And there are three verses. I'll just mention them and then we'll move on. The first one is Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. There isn't another way. That's Acts 4.12. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. There isn't any other way to heaven. All roads don't lead to Rome in heaven. There is one way, and it's called Jesus. And the last one is 1 Timothy 2.5, where it says, there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So that's the note I passed over last night, the singleness of the jagged, undomesticated, unfamiliar gospel. Now, if there is a gospel like that, that is jagged, undomesticated, unfamiliar, suited for the worst of times, and not just the best of times. If there is such a gospel, and if it offends our sense of self-sufficiency and autonomy, because our names are written in the book without any consultation of us, thank you very much, we didn't exist for a million years, and if it says, you're not in charge here, God is in charge. And if it is so powerful that by means of a slain or a slaughtered lamb, our sins get forgiven, all of our rottenness gets covered by the blood of Jesus, and hell is shut, and heaven is open, and happiness is made our inheritance forever. If there is such a gospel, which there is, then... There is going to be an all-pervading, all-unifying, supreme passion in the saved soul in the not-yet-saved world. And that's what we want to talk about now for a few minutes. What is that single, one, all-pervading all unifying supreme passion that rises up in the soul that has discovered that kind of gospel last night the text i'm going to begin with is second corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 paul's letter to the corinthians the second one because it has a phrase in it that in the last 30 or 40 years of my life, I have not been able to find a better phrase to capture this passion of what happens in the saved soul in the not yet saved world. And part of that world is yourself, right? You're saved, and you know there's a lot about yourself that needs saving. So here we are in 2 Corinthians 6, and the Apostle Paul is describing his own experience and his desire not to put any obstacle in the way of anybody on the way to Christ, and in verses 3 through 10 of Chapter 6, he lists, I counted them, almost 30 marks of his ministry to show its authenticity that should remove obstacles and help people forward toward Christ. And I only want to look at verses 8 in the middle to the end of verse 10. I'll read this with you. We are treated as imposters. And yet, we are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's the phrase, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything so verse 10 at the beginning sorrowful yet always rejoicing how does he mean that does the emphasis fall on sorrow or does the emphasis fall on joy let's let's look at the list again imposters verse we're in the middle of verse eight. Imposters—we're viewed as imposters, yet we're true. Unknown, yet well known. Dying—Behold, we live. Punished, yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now, in every one of those pairs, would you agree that the second part stands in spite of the first part? That's the. That's the. Every one of them. The second part stands. It's rugged. It's durable. It doesn't go away in spite of the first part. And whenever you have a a structure like that in your mouth, in your language, you're emphasizing the the beauty or the strength or the wonder of what survives in spite of the first part. So you might say, I don't know how it was was for you at the end of the semester, but you might say, even though I was bone-weary... I stayed up all night, aced the test. Now, the point of that sentence is not your weariness. Weariness creates the background for the main point. I I made it. I pulled all night. I aced the test in spite of the obstacle of weariness. That's the way these, these pairs work here. So let me just say them again, paraphrasing like that. People see us as impostors, but in spite of that, we are real. We are virtually unknown in the Roman Empire, nobodies, but in spite of that, we are well known by the one person in the universe who matters. Third, we're dying. Our bodies are wasting away, but in spite of that, our eternal life in Christ is untouchable. Fourth, we are punished, but in spite of that, God hasn't seen fit yet to take us home. Fifth, we're sorrowful. We're sorrowful about sin and misery and pain in this world and in ourselves. But in spite of that, our joy is unshaken and constant. Sixth, we are poor. We have little wealth in this world, but in spite of that, we make many rich with the one treasure in the universe that counts more than anything. And lastly, we're nothing compared to the lovers of this world. We have nothing. In spite of that, we are heirs with Christ of the Father's estate, which means we own everything. That's the way it works, right? Are we together? In spite of these things... These things stand, which shows that the emphasis is on the second half of all these pairs here, including sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The joy in in the Christian's life is the rugged thing, the durable thing, the lasting thing, and the sorrow is not the main thing. It's just the real thing. One of the most amazing things about becoming a Christian is that awakens you to more sorrow. You come to Christ and you're not naive. You suddenly wake up to pain. Of course, there's pain for unbelievers, but they don't have any sense of how big it is, how horrible it is, how long it can be. To be a Christian is to be awake to cancer and birth defects and profound mental disabilities and divorce and child abuse, including abortion and terrorism and earthquakes and tsunamis and racial hostilities and prejudices and white-collar crime and sex trafficking and poverty and hunger and a thousand daily frustrations that make life very hard. Every Christian is increasingly sensitized to these things. The gospel brings life, right? And living things are awake and alert and touchable by other things. Which means welcome to Christ, and greater sorrow. I I don't have a lot of patience with Christian ministries that sell Jesus with the promise that he'll make life easier. He doesn't, I promise you. He makes it real. He makes it eternal. And he makes the joy in it, indomitable and invincible, but so do your sorrows rise. Come to Jesus and learn how to weep. The world doesn't know how to weep for lost people. They are one. They don't even believe in it. They don't believe in hell. They don't see to the bottom of anyone's pain. They see pain. They feel pain. But they don't see to the bottom of it. Christians are the saddest people in the world and the happiest. Do you feel that? I'm I'm getting this from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10 sorrowful yet always rejoicing, not sequential, simultaneous. Do you hear it? Sorrowful. Yet always in, in, under, around, sorrow, joy. There isn't any other kind in a not yet saved world, right? If you think, I've got to have all the sadness out of my life. I've got to get all the sorrow and brokenness out of my life. Then I might be happy. You won't have any. You will never get all the sorrow and all the brokenness out of your life. The more you love, the more you hurt. So I love this phrase. I love it. I don't want to be sad. Frankly, I hate sorrow. I hate it. I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. I don't like crying. And I can't control the phone calls that come. The doctors report. The nine-year-old missionary kid who fell on Christmas Day, bumped her head and died. We know those people. So the gospel brings life. And with life comes sensitivity to reality. And reality is really sad, in a not-yet-saved world. So you become like Jesus, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. um, Isaiah 53, 3. When he drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known... On this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Nobody was, was weeping over the Pharisees that day but one person, Jesus. And when you come to him, you become like him and you cry over things you never cried about before. So welcome to Jesus and sorrow. And always always rejoice so here's my question if that's a phrase that captures the one passion of the saved soul that loves the gospel knows it's bound for glory and lives in a not yet saved world if that's the phrase sorrowful yet always rejoicing how can that be how can you in and through all the sorrows of your life. Rejoice. Not after the sorrows of your life, not in between the sorrows of your life, but always. That's what it says. Sorrowful yet always. How can that be? What can the joy be rooted in to make it so durable, so constant, so unshakable that with all the sorrows that grow in your life, and don't diminish, but grow the longer you live, what, what's it based on? So that's what we turn to next. Sorrow is feeding on the gloom of the world. Joy is feeding on the glory of God. And that's why they're not equal. One is temporary and the other is forever. One is weak and the other is strong and durable. So glory-fed joy is stronger than gloom-fed joy sorrow and i want to show you that in two passages in 1st peter and then close with a couple of applications that we'll pick up tonight but before i go to 1st peter let me clarify some terminology here i've been thinking about these issues a long time so i know some of the some of the blowback that happens when you start talking about passion and joy, and sorrow, and all these, this emotional component of the Christian life, which I regard as not at all peripheral, but right at the center of what it means to be a Christian, to have one passion for the glory of God. So a couple of clarifying comments about terminology. You can use the word passion for the feeling itself, right, in your heart, or the object about which you are passionate. You can say, he loves her with a passion. And there the word passion is referring to what's going on inside him, right? Or you can say, she is his passion. Same word, very different referent. One focuses on the experience, good, right, and the other focuses on the object that is awakening the experience. And just have to keep that in mind. Those two uses of the word passion, keep them in mind. Now, up till now, I'm using it in terms of the feeling. The passion inside. When I say sorrowful yet always rejoicing, I mean in here something is going on that's positive in response to something good out there that can't be shaken. That's why I'm using it that way, and I'm okay with that. I think that's the way the Bible uses joy in those contexts. But got to be careful here with our terms because joy while being an essential Christian passion, feeling, spiritual affection, soul sensation, whatever you want to call it, when I, when I say that the glory of God is my passion, I mean I pursue God with passion. I don't pursue passion with passion. You know, if I say what is my passion? The answer is not, my passion is my passion. Which means sometimes I'll use the phrase, pursue your passion. And, and yeah, that's okay if you mean it, the objective will like, pursue him, pursue him. Or, or if it's her, she's my passion, pursue her in this relationship. Know that. But if you say, pursue passion means, I just want this feeling. I don't care where it comes from or who stirs it up. I just want this kind of experience. Then you're way, you've lost the needle that's been taken out of your compass. Okay, so just know that whenever I use the term passion for our one passion, I might be referring sometimes to what's going on in here, but I always mean in reference to an object out there that is awakening the passion in here. Or I might say the glory of God or Christ or the gospel is my one passion, and I mean it's the object that awakens in here the all-unifying, all-pervading, supreme passion, or joy in it. So it just helps when you're thinking and talking about Christianity that you make those distinctions when you're relating inner experiences to external reality because both are essential. Both are essential. Some people have all objectivity and nothing's going on in here and others are all emotion, and it hardly connects to anything objective and understood out here. One tends to be intellectualistic, and you can just tell they don't, they're not in touch. <laughs> not, there's no reality going on here. This is talking. And the others, you feel like they're just waffling, just like, Jellyfish in the in the current of emotion, just going one way, going the other way, but whoa it 's real it 's real in here. well, no, it 's not because there 's no connection with reality it 's just all emotion inside, so all that just to clarify the terminology. if you have your Bible and you want to look let 's go to first Peter. This is the first epistle of Peter near the end of the New Testament, and I've been living in it for several months because I taught it at Bethel, Bethlehem College and Seminary last semester. His first letter, and the amazing implications now are that he makes clear the connection between your one passion and the glory of God. So verse 3, he's celebrating the new birth of believers. They've been born again by God. Let's read that. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. So you've been born again and you've been brought as a a newborn child of God. You now come into an inheritance of the Father that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he connects that with joy in verse 6. In this you rejoice. And this refers back to, you were born again, you have a living hope, God is a God of mercy, you come into an inheritance that cannot ever fade, you will be safe in that infinite inheritance forever. In this you rejoice. And then he does 2 Corinthians 6.10 and connects it simultaneously with grief. So let's keep reading in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, that means this short life, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, you have an inheritance, you've been born again, you have a God of mercy, this inheritance is unfading and imperishable, it won't ever uh, fail you. He's keeping you for it, verse 5, and in this you rejoice in spite of the fact that there are so many various trials that are grieving you, and these are not sequential, like I have some grief today, and tomorrow I have an inheritance in heaven. And here's another day, and it's grief, and then there's a day where I enjoy my inheritance. No. You always have an inheritance. He's always keeping you. The gospel is always true, and your joy in him is invincible. At the same time, you weep your eyes out because your mom passed away. Or your dad lost his job, or your brother just did something just make, drives you crazy. At the same time. So this is not different from what we saw in Second Corinthians 6:10. And the question is simply, So, how does that connect to glory? Because you're, you, you're saying there's a connection between being joy that is glory-fed and sorrow or grief that is gloom-fed. So where are you seeing that in 1 Peter? And that comes now as we drop down to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus. Isn't it interesting? This is written in the first century to people in Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, who've never, ever seen Jesus just like you. So it was already in the first century. He's gone back to heaven, and now the challenge is faced. People are getting converted to a person they cannot see. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Here comes. Rejoice with joy, that is, Inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that mean? The literal translation would be you rejoice in him with inexpressible. You can't put it into words, right? We, we feel that so often with genuine, authentic, deep emotions. Emotion and language are not of the same thing, right? So to translate one to the other, you get, stuff gets lost, right? You feel profound love for somebody and you try to say it and just, that's totally inadequate, what I just said. Or you feel a grief and, and somebody says, what's wrong? And you can't, there's no words, Words won't work. That's what it means when it says inexpressible. This is a joy that is inexpressible, and, and then comes the key phrase. They're literally glorified. So what does it mean to call Christian joy in Jesus glorified? Glorified joy. Now, I mean, maybe you've heard other portions of the New Testament that say, if we suffer with him, we shall be glorified with him, Romans eight seventeen. So someday Christ is coming back, and we're going to be so caught up into his glorious person that we get changed. All our sins go away. We get a new body. We're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. I get that. I get glorified that way. But what's this? This is like right now in a not-yet-saved world while I'm being grieved by various trials, verse 6, I rejoice in him with glorified, inexpressible joy. What's that? And I, I think you know what that is By analogy when you are thrilled with something or someone that thing shapes the joy, shapes the person having the joy which is why having joy in sin is so awful because it makes you like it it makes you like it so if you are totally given over to raunchy pornography, you will become a raunchy person. And your joy will be so defiled and so contaminated, you can hardly look on anything beautiful anymore and feel a pure joy, a glorified joy. But if you are taken up with beautiful things, this is just analogy. Just pick what makes you happy in this world right now for the analogy. The most beautiful thing you can think of. The most righteous and good and holy thing that makes you happy. If you dwell on that and you linger on that and you rejoice in that, you become like that. You do. You become a sweeter, kinder, more holy, more beautiful, more wonderful person. Because all of your heart is going into that beautiful thing. And it's coming into you. And it's shaping your joy. So my understanding of what that means when it says glorified joy now is that as you focus on the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the wonder of Christ, and all that he's done in the gospel, your joy becomes like that. It's a glorified joy. It participates in, it gets shaped by that. And one of the reasons I feel confirmed in that understanding is because of what Jesus said about his own joy. This is John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy, this is Jesus talking, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Now, is that a different joy than 1 Peter 1, 8? I doubt it. 1 Peter 1, 8, it's called a glorified joy, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you my joy. And Jesus' joy is primarily in the Father and in the glory of the Father. His bread is to do the will of the Father. And therefore, as we rejoice in Jesus, Jesus' joy becomes our joy. His joy shapes our joy. You may, you may be sitting there right now feeling like this, is, this emotional talk about joy is just so far different from anything I've experienced. I doubt that I'll ever be able to get in there. I don't, don't believe that. That's not God talking in your head. That's Satan talking. You can't have that. You've been too low, too dirty. My joys are just grungy joys, and so uh, I, I won't ever be able to go there where he's talking about. That's not true. And the reason it's not true is because Jesus does the miracle. You start focusing on Jesus and the gospel, something happens in here. You don't have any control over it. You don't. He's taken over. He's going to make you able to be happy in things a year ago you never thought you could ever be happy with. Yes, he will. So my, my first answer to the question, how in the world can sorrowful yet always rejoicing be? How can this joy be so durable that it survives all the sorrow is that it is a joy that is in the glory of Christ or the glory of God and is being shaped by that glory, made by that glory, and participating in that glory and is therefore unshakable because the glory of God is the most glorious, powerful, durable beautiful, lasting reality in the universe. One other text to confirm this. Let's go over to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a glorious and bleak book. Glorious because there's so much of Christ in it and his glory, and bleak because these Christians are suffering so badly. So here we are at fiery trials again. So he's picking up on the word fire, the fire In chapter 1 verse 6 that refines the gold of your faith and makes you able to enjoy God in his glory is picked up here in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. In order that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of Glory of God and of God rests upon you. So twice, twice in the midst of fiery trials, He's connecting joy and glory. You get it? Look, see, see them again, because I want you to see the connection here. I'm, I'm making this connection of what makes joy durable in the midst of sorrows. Always is because of it's linked with glory. It's feeding on glory. So verse. 13 rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed so there is a future dimension to this right his glory is coming. He's going to come back someday. And when he comes back, every mouth will be stopped. All the adversaries would be put to naught. All the people that have been lowly and persecuted and have followed him are going to be vindicated. And every one of those people will rejoice at his coming primarily because it's going to be spectacular glory. And therefore, now we rejoice in sharing his sufferings in order that we might be prepared for that moment. But that's not the only way it's connected. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted now for the name of Christ, you are blessed now, blessed now, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I have often wondered, whether I will be able to confess my faith, not deny Christ at the moment of tortured death. That probably won't happen. You know, I'm so old we won't be there yet, but I, 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 I think about it a lot. Every time I hear another story of a Christian being killed, All you have to do is is say Jesus is not the son of God and Muhammad is the true prophet and, and Allah is the one true God. That's all you have to do and I won't slit your throat. And my question for myself is, what would I do? And this is the verse that gives me hope. I know it's only talking about insulting, but isn't the principle the same? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, or let's just say if you are being threatened for the name of Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again as the true and only way to the Father, if you're being threatened by that, you are blessed. Why? Not just because he's coming someday. You're going to be raised from the dead with a new body. You'll be vindicated. All these adversaries will be put to naught. That's true, but that's verse 13. This text says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I am counting on a last-minute arrival of God. That's what I'm counting on. I'm not counting on John Piper's willpower. I will be shaking so badly, I won't be able to talk. I know myself. I'm a nervous person. I couldn't even talk in high school. I couldn't talk in front of a group. It comes back to me every now and then. I have no idea where it came from. The fact that I can talk to you now is just one ongoing miracle. I took C's in civics class because they had to give an oral book report, and I couldn't do it. It was horrible. My teenage years were just sad because I couldn't talk. And that, that's probably going to be the way I end, right? Might have a tube down my throat, or I'll just be so nervous and my diaphragm will be almost paralyzed like it was then, and I won't be able to say anything. And if the spirit of glory and of God doesn't show up with a blessing for that moment, I'll be a goner. I mean, I'll just cave so I think what Peter is saying is that the reason you can be blessed, you can be happy in the moment of being insulted or killed is because there's a spirit of glory that is revealing to your heart at that moment how precious he is, how beautiful he is, how he's the treasure of all treasures and the pleasure of all pleasures. And you will be able at that moment to feel it just enough to make it home. That's what I'm counting on. I said that there were two implications of this I'd close with and then pick them up tonight. But just a summary word before I give you the implications. So. There is one gospel. It's a rugged, jagged, undomesticated, unfamiliar gospel based on the slaughter of a lamb for undeserving sinners that opens the door of paradise for them and all who believe will not worship the beast because God has committed himself to keep them forever. And growing out of that incredible gospel is one all-pervading, all-unifying, supreme passion in a fallen world, namely sorrowful, yet always rejoicing in the infinitely valuable glory of God that shines most brightly out of the gospel. Two implications. Number one, God's aim to be glorified in you and his aim to give you invincible happiness are not distinct aims but one. Since your joy is in the glory of God, in the gospel, shining out with irresistible radiance, Since your joy is in the glory of God in the gospel, your joy glorifies the God of the gospel. Right? You know this. What you really are happy in, you show to be valuable. People can tell tell what you love. People can tell what you think is really valuable. You talk about it. First thing on your lips, it just, it just spills over. You saw a movie that blew you away? First thing you talk about the next day with your friend, you see this, Did you see this, Did you see this, Did you see this. Why? It makes you so happy. And they know you love that movie. That movie's great in your eyes. That's a pretty sad identity, but that's the analogy. That's the way it works. And therefore, God is shown to be great when he makes us happy in him. Implication number two. We're gonna talk about these more tonight. Implication number two. Therefore, since God is shown to be great by your being Indomitably, indomitably happy in God, you should try to be happy all the time for the rest of your life, 24-7. Even in your dreams. Don't have a lot of control over your dreams. But a little bit. When was the last time you prayed about your dreams? I pray. I pray that I would see Jesus in my dreams. I pray that I wouldn't have ugly dreams. I pray that I would meet God in my dreams. I pray that I wouldn't wake up in a panic in the morning feeling guilty because of my dreams. You ever pray about your dreams? If you have a little bit of control. Ask God Almighty to break into your dreams. So when I say 24-7, it's not a throwaway phrase. You should aim to be as happy in God as you can be in a not-yet-saved world, which is very happy while sorrowing. Let's pray. So, Father, I know, I know these are paradoxical things, mysterious things. These are young people. They haven't lived seven decades. They're just beginning, in a sense, to taste the mysteries of Christian emotion. But you can take them light years forward by the Holy Spirit. They can go home from this conference decades ahead of their unbelieving parents and friends. Not for pride's sake, but for service's sake. They can get it. That to come to Christ is to come to more sorrow and to come to a superior, all-pervading, all-unifying, supreme passion of joy in the glory of yourself. I ask that you would do that here. In Jesus' name, amen.